Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds, to another episode of You're Gonna Die Out There. This is a, a nature nugget. Megan will be telling us a story today. So exciting story. I- I'm excited. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, do I just go straight into it? Just, What's it? Do oh, have do any, I, is there anything going on oh, this week? Oh, oh, we, oh. Well, the only thing is that there was an owl episode last week. Yes, yes. I went to Home Depot. And saw all the, uh, we were just talking about it, actually, that we were talking about how the Halloween decorations are out. Yes. And there was this, like, old man gravedigger one. It reminds me of, like, when I was a kid, because I'm old, and going to, like, Disney and all, like, the robotic. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, so this is, like, a thing. Like, you can get, like, anyone can get one now. Yeah, you can make your own ride in your backyard. Imagine this when we were kids. Like, uh, it's kind of mind-blowing that you just go to Home Depot and you can buy these things. Anything. I want to get the Lincoln that's, like... In 1862, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, no, but there was like a grave digger one, and it was actually pretty cool. Mm -hmm. It was creepy, of course. He's like hitting the shovel, Uh. like on the ground, and then he had an owl on his shoulder. And I took a picture. I was like, should I post this? But it wasn't that cool. You know, the thing that I want them to make an animatronic version of is Uh. that guy from Monty Python uh, in the Holy Grail. Who's like, bring out your dead. And he's got like, he's oh, got yeah. like the valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Right? Kids and just today like would a cart, get it. Just like a cart of uh, putrid dead bodies. I think that would be hilarious. That would be hilarious. Someone make A lot that. of people wouldn't get it. But as I was looking at this, you know, this animatronic grave digger yeah, guy yeah. with the owl on his shoulder, I was like, first of all, an what? owl would never sit on anyone's shoulder. Never. It's just saying. Yeah. Even if you're creepy and digging graves, it's like, not, they it's wouldn't not, be into it. They're not it. parrots. They're not parrots. They're, they're not parrots. And also, ouch. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so I'm just thinking, this is totally wrong. So did you go to the uh, front of Home Depot where you like... Uh, I was like, excuse me. This is incorrect. Do you, can I speak to somebody above you? Yeah. So... Who created this? You guys are going to need to fix where this. Where did you guys order this from? It's just not correct. It's just blatantly wrong. Perfect. Um, owls don't do that. So, yeah. Amazing. All right, Jen, are you ready for the story I have today? Yes, I'm so ready. You seem excited about it. and I'm excited about too. it. Where did I hear about this story? I don't even remember. It was like an aside on some podcast I was listening to. Uh-huh. The point is, I heard the story and I was like, that is insane. And <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Jen is not. Ever oh, heard about it's this. not the Japanese. Talk. No, 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 no. Because like, I think I mentioned that one in the previous, that the heart starts pounding. Yeah, podcast. you talked yeah. about it on the owl episode, but. So good. I did go back did and listen, listen to it. Did you listen to it? Yeah. It's so mean. It's awful. Yeah. It's awful. And I then, hated it. And then kind of at the end, I was, you know, she makes the point that like, oh, he had the chance. And in case you guys haven't heard about this, you go listen to this episode. It's about this Japanese guy. Anyway, on the podcast, heart starts pounding. And it's like, at the end, she's like, you know, the door was always unlocked. He could have left at any point. But yeah. he was naked. He was naked. He had nothing. He had nothing. Yeah. Anyway. No, it was insane. It's insane. Yeah. And then that they just kept making him do it. Yeah. Ugh. That it just kept going on. Yeah. And it broke him. Yeah. Like, mentally. Yeah. 
I really hated it. Anyway. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little story today, Jen, about uh, it happens in the north end of Boston, Massachusetts, uh-huh. and it's in the early 1900s. Okay. Okay. So there's this stone cutter. His name is John Barry, B-A-R-R-Y, uh-huh. and he's married to his wife, Agnes Barry. They have 12 kids. 12 okay. kids. Sadly, Agnes passes away, so he's a widower. And oh, 12 kids. 12 kids. I mean, yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> a lot of kids because uh, you know they're probably like 25 right Is yeah it? anyway but in this area there's like a lot of Irish and Italian families uh-huh. so I mean John Barry that sounds Irish to me probably he's Irish I, we're, I'm just going out on the limb okay also Boston all right so he's really worried that you know if he passes away his kids will become ward of the state so he's like a really good dad he's like trying to like make it and do all the right things mm-hmm. whatever Uh, January 15th of 1919, every lunchtime, he went to this firehouse, okay? And he hung out with all these fire firemen dudes. Like, they all played cards together, billiards, whatever. Did he have a job? Yeah, he's a stonecutter. Oh, So, like, he he takes lunch, right? He goes to lunch over at the firehouse. He goes to see his friends, especially this guy, George Leahy. They're, like, BFFs. They hang out together. There's also a couple other guys, Bill Connor, Fred McDermott, Nat Bowering, and Patty Driscoll. (laughs) Very Irish. (laughs) Patty with a DDY. Anyway, so this is just a little clip from what happened to him during that lunch. Okay. This one day, January 15th, 1919. The 56-year-old stonecutter John Barry, her, oh, he's 56, my bad. Well, whatever. He's had 12 kids. He was 25 when she died. Who knows? <laughs> I'm just kidding. She wasn't. But, but also, it's cold. It's cold. It's, it's January winter. in Boston. Uh-huh. Baston. It's real cold. They're near the Haba. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so John like Barry. John Barry's standing in the firehouse, mm-hmm. and he hears this groaning noise, and the ground starts to shake, okay? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I freaking knew it. Then he feels searing pain across his back and legs. He smells and tastes sweet molasses as it tried to flow into his nostrils and his mouth. He was pinned face down. His cheek mashed into the sticky molasses. Only his left arm is free. He used that arm as a sweeper to keep the molasses away from his face from smothering him. Then he tried moving other parts of his body, but other than his neck, which he could twist, he couldn't move. Whatever was pressing on his body was crushing the life out of him. It hurt to breathe. Whatever breath he could draw seemed insufficient to fill his lungs. And he had to be careful not to inhale a mouthful of sticky molasses. He summoned up strength and cried for help again, and this time heard his voice resonate into the darkness. And then a miracle, a response. He recognized the voice of firefighter Patty Driscoll trapped under there with him. One of the moaners he had heard, keep up your courage, John, Driscoll said, his voice cracking. They'll get us out. So, Jen, today we're going to talk about the Great Molasses Flood, also known as the Boston Molasses Disaster. Have you ever heard of this? Oh, my God, no. But is this where (laughs) Slower Than Molasses Uphill in January comes from? Oh, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Because it was January. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I never thought about that. Yeah, I don't know. Probably. Wow. Okay, so behind the firehouse where he was uh-huh. is a gigantic storage tank filled with 2.3 million US gallons of molasses it weighs like 13,000 tons but why why but couldn't why? they use smaller barrels but why okay so in 1915 a few years earlier it was before bro- prohibition or prohibition had like been put into place but they were giving everybody like a year to like get the alcohol get as out drunk of their as system you can. right and molasses is like Important for making alcohol because you can ferment it, right, to produce ethanol. Uh-huh. And then also, I didn't know this, 
it's a key component in munitions. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So at the time, I don't know if it still is. Does it like at does the it like stick all the all the things together? I don't know. It, but it must whatever. be whatever some byproduct or something of like fermenting or I don't know. Anyway. Oh weird. So molasses is like really important. And there's this company. Is it wait, my hand is up. Yeah. Is it still important? Sure. I mean, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Do we care about molasses in 2023? I'm just... I, that's a good question. I don't okay. know. <laughs> uh, so yeah. <laughs> sure. Also, I did... Anyway, I didn't really know that molasses is not like syrup. In my brain, molasses is like syrup, but it's not. It's, I thought it was like It's jam. more bitter. It, I mean, it's the same kind of... It's like thicker syrup. Oh. Yeah. It's like chunky syrup. Or like, like viscous. Oh. Viscous syrupy bitter but kind of sweet also like smells sweet i don't know anyway it's black too it's like like tar it's like i don't know the way yeah the way some people described it right all right so in 1915 there is this company they are called purity distilling company and they're right behind the fire station they have the big vat of molasses behind them okay well actually 1915 the vat wasn't made yet but they were distilling molasses and they're like, you know, we need to figure out a way to house like a ton of molasses because prohibition is coming up. But we want to like make a bunch of ethanol just in case, you know, like prohibition's going to stop one day. We're going to be able to sell alcohol again, whatever. All right. So they're like making these plans to build a big vat and they hire this guy who's going to come in and like build the vat. But he doesn't really have any kind of experience as an engineer. He's like... He like put it on his card. Yeah. He's like like that maker. He's like, I think he's an accountant actually. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) anyway. He's explaining a lot. So over the years, they end up making this vat in the, I think the end of 1915 or something. Mm -hmm. And and a considerable amount of molasses had been stored there by the company. And they would offload the molasses from ships and store it for later transfer by a pipeline to the purity ethanol plant, which is like. In Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So it's like they come in on the ships, they empty it all in there, and then it goes into a pipe someplace. Okay. Some things you should know is that originally it was like a silver or like tin or whatever metally colored. But the molasses would leak out of the vat. It would just like come out. There were like cracks in it. And so the company painted it brown so that no one would notice that it was leaking. leaking. And actually this guy, John Barry, had like at one point in these years gone over there and been like, you guys, this is going to explode. Like it can't hold this much molasses. Like this is insane. You guys have to fix this. Like it's (laughs) It's too much molasses. It's not okay. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, there are all these problems with it. Like people would even hear it groaning during the day. Just like, like a giant molasses house settling (laughs) just groaning to live in the early 1900s so fun yeah so fun all right so on january 15th 1919 the temperatures in boston had actually gotten up above 40 degrees fahrenheit like kind of quickly Uh and so it had been really cold in the previous days so the molasses that they put into the container like the most recent one they had like heated it up a little so that it would go in easier, mm-hmm. right? It like, got super cold and then it's getting warmer. So it's uh, like too many temperature fluctuations, right? Right. Yeah. So the day before the ship had delivered the fresh load, 
they had warmed it up to reduce the viscosity so they could transfer it over. And they said probably because there was a thermal expansion of the older, colder molasses already inside the tank, that's why it ended up bursting. So it burst at around 12.30 p.m. lunchtime, right? Mm -hmm. John's over there at the thing. And actually, what happened was when the molasses came out, the firehouse was like one of the first buildings to get hit. And the force with which the 23 million (laughs) gallons of molasses came out pushed the entire firehouse off of its foundation and rolled it down the street oh my god yeah all right so witnesses, and there are the people who should be helping people and they they cannot because they are literally stuck witnesses reported that they felt the ground shake and heard a roar as it collapsed a long rumble similar to the passing of an elevated train others reported a tremendous crashing a deep growling a thunderclap like bang a sound like a machine gun as a rivets shot out of the tank. Oh, my God. So it burst in a place, but it was, like, everywhere all at once. And this is, like, one of the times. They didn't do it very often, but the vat was filled to capacity on this day. Previously, I think they'd only done that, like, twice. And I will mention here that, you know how it, like, leak molasses? Uh-huh. Like, the neighbors would just go and get free molasses all the time. They would just go collect it. I feel like this is really timely for Labor Day. Oh, yeah. Honestly, like, thank God there's laws now. Thank God there's OSHA. (laughs) That's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah. All right. So in case you didn't know, the density of molasses is 40% more dense than water. Mm -hmm. So it's like a freaking brick wall, Jen, Uh, resulting in the mass, the molasses having a great deal of potential energy. So when it burst, right, do you remember back in physics, like potential energy is like, wow, you could be going this. That's your potential. Like if the molasses was in a class, the teacher's like, wow, you have so much potential right now to just destroy this entire thing. (laughs) (laughs) So when it came out, it like really came out. The collapse translated that energy into a wave of molasses that was 25 feet high, that's eight meters, uh, at its peak, moving at 35 miles an hour. What? 35 miles an hour of a 25-foot wave of molasses. That is a tsunami of molasses. I can't even, I can't even imagine that. Yeah. That's like a three-story building of molasses. Yes. It's insane. The wave was sufficient to drive steel panels of the burst tank against the gir- the girders of the adjacent Boston Elevated Railway Atlantic Avenue structure. So there's like a streetcar, an elevated streetcar. Uh-huh. And it tipped everything off of the tracks. Nearby buildings, like I mentioned, the firehouse, right, mm-hmm. swept off its foundation and crushed. The firehouse actually made it like down the street almost to the harbor, like almost to the like where the ships were, like just got pushed. Several blocks were flooded to a depth of two to three feet of molasses. In the end, Stephen Puleo, I think he wrote a book. I might mention it later, but uh, he said molasses waist deep covered the street and swirled and bubbled out about the wreckage here and there struggled to form whether it was an animal or a human being was impossible to tell only an upheaval a thrashing about in the sticky mass showed where any life was horses died like so many flies in sticky fly paper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. So there's a lot of horses this time. It's like 1919. Yeah, yeah. There's like horses everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So just... And it's in the city. Buried. It, yeah, uh, bustling. Things are going on there. Oh, my God. The Boston Globe reported that people, quote, were picked up by a rush of air and hurled many feet. 
Others had debris hurled at them from the rush of sweet-smelling air. A truck was picked up and hurled into Boston Harbor. After the initial wave, the molasses became viscous, exacerbated by the cold temperatures. So it's like... Yeah, it's starting to get super thick. Yeah, super thick. So that made it really difficult to rescue anybody. I've never heard of this, and it is insane. It's like the worst. I have also never heard of it. And as soon as it was mentioned on whatever podcast I was listening to, I immediately opened my phone and I was like, I have to know more about this. This is insane. It's insane. About 150 people were injured and 21 people and several horses were killed. I mean, if you think about it, that's kind of like a low. That's a low number, but I guess it was in a small area. Small area, yeah. The wounded included people, horses, and dogs. Coughing fits became one of the most common ailments after the initial blast, because I'm sure, like, particles, you know, in your lungs. Edwards Park wrote of the child's experience in a 1983 article for for the Smithsonian. Anthony D. Stasio, walking homeward with his sisters from the Michelangelo School, was picked up by the wave and carried, tumbling on its crest, almost as though he were surfing. Then he grounded, and the molasses rolled him up like a pebble as the wave diminished. I can't Mm -hmm. talk. He heard his mother call his name and couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with the smothering goo. He passed out, then opened his eyes to find three of his four sisters staring at him. So I think they were able to actually save him. Mm-hmm. But, like, can you imagine being a kid just walking home from school? And just a wave of molasses. Right? I mean, he probably was walking home to go get lunch. You know, like, back in the day, how people would go to school and then they go home and eat lunch and go back yeah. to school. Like, yeah, just... It kind of reminds... It, it makes me think of... Uh... What's the cartoon movie with all the food? <laughs> oh, make- yeah. Uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? Yes. Yeah, no, it's like you see these like kind of fantastical things, right, yeah. in children's movies. And yeah. you're like, oh, that's okay. That'd be so much fun. Like, no, actually, it could kill you. I always think that when I watch that movie. I'm like, like how this are they is not really dead? dangerous. Yeah. Tacos, like a hamburger tacos flying falling from-, from the sky. Yeah. Tacos from the sky. We almost did it together. That was amazing. <laughs> all right. So first to the scene were 116 cadets under the direction of Lieutenant Commander H.J. Copeland from the USS Nantucket. That's a training ship of the Massachusetts Nautical School, which is now the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. They were docked nearby at at the playground pier. The cadets ran several blocks towards the accident and entered into the knee-deep flood of molasses to pull out the survivors, while others worked to keep curious onlookers from getting in the way of the rescuers. Curious onlooker? Like, I would be so far away from that. Oh, I'd be on looking though. Really? I don't from just, a from a safe distance. It just feels like like the blob, right? You don't know what yes, it is. Like it's it just is coming like to kill blob. you. Yeah. Maybe this is where the blob was inspired. I could honestly, be. Honestly. It's pretty much the same. I mean, because who could just imagine? But the blob just grows as it eats people, right? Right, right. It just gets bigger. And bigger. Yeah. The Boston police, Red Cross, Army, and Navy personnel showed up after. There were some nurses from the Red Cross that dove into the molasses to get people out. Other people, you know, everybody came together, keeping all of the victims warm, trying to feed the workers, all of this. Like many people worked through the night. The injured were so numerous that doctors and surgeons set up makeshift hospital uh, in one of the nearby buildings. Wow. Yeah. So definitely the rescuers, it was very difficult for them to get through all of this viscous molasses and help people. Four days was the total amount of time that they did the search. Um, After four days, they were like, there's nobody else that we're going to find who's alive. Mm -hmm. And they said many of the dead were so glazed over in molasses that they couldn't even recognize them. Oh, my God. And it's like, do you, how do you, yeah, how do you get that off? Because, you know, like honey is... 
honey, another sticky, it, it's water-based, water-soluble, water yeah. so yeah. you can just like rinse it off, right? But yeah. I don't think that works the same with molasses because it's alcohol-based. I'm just right? like, how did they even clean up after that? Yeah, okay, so they, they talk about it a little bit. But yeah. yeah, other victims that were swept into the Boston Harbor, they were found three to four months later. It's like actually just pushed out into the water and then I guess they came back or they were, uh. yeah. Uh, so back to John Barry. Yeah. If you remember, he is trapped inside. With that, Patty. With Patty. Rescue workers actually did find him. They crawled through the wrecked building that he was in to administer morphine shots and gave him brandy to drink because he was in so much pain. Quote, John Barry was alive and home before the end of the day, Sunday, January 19th. And whereas he merely feared death while he was trapped under the firehouse four days ago, now he wished for it. He hadn't been able to get a good look at himself in the hospital. Each time he moved, a nurse would order him to lie back and rest. And the morphine had masked much of his pain. But now he could see and feel. And he thought that death would be a welcome alternative. The timbers and heavy water heater that had pinned him for hours had damaged his torso, injured his back and legs, and crushed his spirit. His pain was indescribable. His entire body from his neck down was black from bruising. His thighs and knees were torn and lacerated, and his spine felt as though it would snap at any moment. Boils covered his arms and chest. The doctor had already visited him once to slice them open and drain the pus, and he showed John Barry's daughters how to clean the boils in the future. His girls, he knew, still couldn't bear to look at him. Their strong, powerfully built father had, within days, become a broken, pitiful old man with snow-white hair. His hair turned completely white wow. from this experience. And that's an excerpt from The Dark Tide, The Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. There's a book. I feel like this is a time when you'd be like, thank God I have 12 kids. <laughs> Someone can take care of me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, at least a couple of them. But I think on some level, he was worried about taking care of them still. Right. Yeah, but he's. Like, but but good news, Jen. Yeah. When it was time for the trial, because there was a trial. Mm, there uh, better be. Yeah. John said he had not been able to continue his work and had been put on light duty only since the disaster. Uh, quote: The pain in my back hurts all the time. It's as though my spine is breaking. I can't straighten up. I feel like I'm going to fall over almost all of the time. The doctor says there is no cure. He was awarded four thousand dollars at the time, the modern day equivalent of four hundred thousand dollars. So uh, I. It's like he should have got like four million. Agreed. Yeah, way more. He has twelve kids. Yes, yes. I mean, their kids. kids are expensive, right? But in 1919, could they still work in the factory? <laughs> like, <laughs> <just> <laughs> I haven't looked up the labor laws, but I'm pretty right. sure they were still yeah, like five year olds were still yeah, working. It was yeah. still a thing. Mm -hmm. In the wake of the accident, 119 residents brought a class action lawsuit against the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. Uh, which had bought Purity Distilling in 1917. So at Ooh, some point, between, yeah. That was a bad purchase. <laughs> that was bad idea. They should have checked that tank. That's when you go from like, you know, riches to rags. Oh, immediately. You're like, that was a bad... Bad investment. Yeah, regret that decision. Uh, it was one of the first class action suits in Massachusetts and is considered a milestone in paving the way for modern corporate regulation. See? I mean, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the company claimed that the tank had been blown up by anarchists. Lies. Yeah, because some of the alcohol produced was to be used in making munitions, but a court-appointed auditor found USIA responsible after three years of hearings. Mm -hmm. Three years later. Uh, the company ultimately paid out $628,000 in damages. That's a total of $10.6 million in 2022, adjusted for inflation. Uh, relatives of those killed reportedly received around $7,000 per victim, Equivalent to $118,000. Mm -mm. Not that great. Not that great. Cleanup crews used salt water 
from a fireboat to wash away the molasses and sand to absorb it. Oh, okay. Yeah. They just got... They needed something to, like, kind of break it up. Yeah. But maybe this could have been, like, the invention of Dawn... You know what I mean? This feels like a job for The guy who lost all the money by buying that company invented Dawn. Dawn. Yeah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) I like that story. Oh, wait. What happened to Patty? Oh, so everybody... I think everybody in the firehouse, except for his one friend, the one that he always... uh, George Leahy. George Leahy passed away. Oh, He was okay. pinned under, I think, one of the table, like a gaming table or something. Oh. Yeah. So, sadly. But all the, I think all the other firemen made it. Okay. They were rescued. So, the harbor was brown with molasses until summer. Like, it was, like, January. Uh-huh. They cleaned it. Still, everything is brown until the summer of that year. And it was reported that, quote, everything that a Bostonian touched was sticky. Ew. Yeah. I would hate that. There is really nothing worse. Yeah. It's like when you go to a restaurant that's like, usually they're really good. The rest is like very tasty, Uh like, but the floors are sticky. You know what I mean? It's like they just don't have time to clean. And you're like, come on. Or when you have kids. Yeah, this is true. And you're like, who spilled something? Everything is sticky. And you stepped in it. Yeah. And it's, then you got a sticky foot. (laughs) It's like the time that my son spilled Sprite Uh on the tile floor. And like two months later, I'm still trying to find all of the places. <laughs> <it's> so clear. Because <laughs> you can't find it anywhere. So annoying. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, there were, like I said, 21 victims, uh, human victims of this. The oldest was 78. The youngest was 10. Oh, yeah. Very sad. Yeah. Uh, several factors might have contributed to the disaster. Let's talk about them. The first factor is that the tank may have leaked from the very first day it was filled in 1915. Perfect. Of course. Yeah. Right. (laughs) It was also constructed poorly and tested insufficiently. And carbon dioxide production might have raised the internal pressure due to fermentation in the tank, happening inside the tank. Okay. Lesson learned. Don't have an accountant build your (laughs) vat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the failure occurred from a manhole cover near the base of the tank and a fatigue crack possibly grew to the point of like a critical point yeah. right, where it's going to blow. Yeah. The tank had been filled to capacity, like I mentioned, only eight times since it was built. And this was one of them. And that meant that the walls were under this like intermittent cyclical load. So like being filled only a few times in those years. And then most of the time it's like down and up and down, you know, it's mm-hmm. like too much difference all the time right it's like you could just empty it fill it all the way back up but not leave it kind of in between all the time right just the pressure yeah uh several authors say that the purity distilling company was trying to get trying to outrace prohibition so i kind of mentioned that right before uh an inquiry after the disaster revealed that arthur gel this is a guy the treasurer neglected basic safety tests while overseeing construction of the tank, such as filling it with water, water to check for leaks. Mm -hmm. They didn't do that. And he ignored warning signs like the groaning noises every time the tank was filled. Also, he had no architectural or engineering experience, background degree, whatever. How does that... Uh, he also, uh, this is like a side note. I mean, he, you're in Boston. You've got like a uh, a slew of uh, people. People building stuff. Yes. Everywhere. He didn't even know how to read a blueprint, Jen. (sighs) (laughs) Yeah. And and like I mentioned, local residents used to collect the leaked molasses, you know, yeah. just like whatever. So that's how much it was leaking. People were just like, I'm just going to go get the molasses for today, you know. A 2014 investigation. So in 2014, they investigated this whole situation again. Wow. They like recreated, yeah. Applied modern engineering analysis and found that the steel was half as thick as it should have been for a tank its size. Yeah, even with lower standards at the time. So it's a thin, 
tank. Another issue is that the steel lacked manganese, so it made it really brittle, like easily broken. The tank's rivets were also apparently flawed. The cracks first formed at the rivet holes. In 2016, a team of scientists and students at Harvard University conducted extensive studies of the disaster, gathering data from many sources, including 1919 newspaper articles, old maps, and weather reports. The student researchers also studied the behavior of cold corn syrup flooding a scale model of the affected neighborhood. Uh. Yeah, insane. All right. So at the place where it happened, they have a historical marker. You can go and see it today. It's the site of a city-owned recreational complex officially named Langon Park, featuring a Little League baseball field, a playground, and bocce courts. Is it bocce? Bocce? I thought it was bocce. Is it bocce? B-O-C-C-E? I mean, what is that game? Is it the one where you hit the ball, like with the little hammery kind of thing? Like it's kind of like croquet, but not? Is it the one where you hit it through the little... That's croquet. Oh, that's croquet? Oh, I mean, maybe it's the same thing. I don't know. We can Google it. Right? It's it's really important that we know this detail. Yeah. Internet. What's that? Uh, There's a small plaque at the entrance to Puo Polo Park placed by the Bostonian Society, and it commemorates the disaster. Hold on. Here's the... yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's that one. There's a picture of some, like... Some balls being hit oh, by Oh, no, mallets. this is where you, like, throw the ball. Oh, And you try to knock one. another one. It's is like that... it's like if you took... Wait, I feel like my sister, like, they play this at... You try to, like, hit somebody yeah. else's ball? Yes. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's actually it's actually pretty... I mean, I think people enjoy, enjoy it. it. It's pretty fun. It's like a fun game. <laughs> I guess that's why it's lasted all this time. <laughs> Look, we should, we should learn bocce. I mean, why not? Honestly. You have a huge yard. I mean, they have a whole park for it. That's insane. Yeah. All right, that's our new uh, that's our new sport. We could open a field, a park for it here on Guam. I like it. And make millions of dollars. Millions. Millions. So much money. <laughs> All right, uh, so the plaque uh, that I mentioned that's commemorating this disaster, it is titled Boston Molasses Flood, and it reads, On January 15th, 1919, a molasses tank at 529 Commercial Street exploded under pressure, killing 21 people. A 40-foot wave of molasses buckled the elevated railroad tracks, crushed buildings, and inundated the neighborhood. Wait, 40-foot wave? I know. Did they exaggerate? I think or... they exaggerated. Okay. Structural defects in the tank combined with unre- unreasonably warm, unseasonably, sorry, unseasonably This is unreasonable. <laughs> uh, contributed to the disaster. So, I mean, that's good. I don't know if I would have had that as a plaque. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more detail or... You should go there and talk to them about it. I'm just going to bring some posty notes. Just like, you know, I should really... Could you reword this? Could you guys fix this? Hi, Bostonian Society. (laughs) Mm. The accident has since become a staple of local culture, uh, not only for the damage the flood brought, but also for the sweet smell that filled the North End for decades after the disaster. So people say that on warm days, it smells really molasses-y. I don't... I'm not into that. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I I feel like I wouldn't... That wouldn't be something that would appeal to me at all. Right. On January 15th, 2019, they had a 100th anniversary f- of the event, mm-hmm. uh, and they did a ceremony in I remembrance. They, they did a reenactment. <laughs> oh my God, no. <laughs> they used ground-penetrating radar to identify the exact location of the tank. I guess the concrete slabs are still there uh-huh. under, like, obviously things have been built on top of them. Uh-huh. So they fa- they're 20 inches below the surface of the baseball diamond. That's what it is at Langon Park. Attendees of the ceremony stood in a circle, making the edge of the tank. The 21 names of those who died were read aloud. So that's kind of nice. What about the horses? Honestly. I want to know about all the horses. Well, 
I think that's it's good that you know over a hundred years later mm-hmm. they're still commemorating. Yeah, yeah, because it's just insane. insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, let's let's remember everyone. We got to talk about the molasses flood. This and the kids. I bet they have to talk about it every year at school, right? Or have to go and learn about it. And they're like, I'm so sick of the molasses story. Like, if you move to Boston, uh-huh. do you like? Do you have to take a test? Maybe and like that's part of it. I mean, it seems like something people from Boston would make you do. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Or like Massachusetts. Well, there's a lot of history in Massachusetts, yeah, but that's sure. got to be in there. That's good. That's got to be right there's up there. There's definitely a chapter for that one. Uh, many laws and regulations governing construction were changed as a direct result of this disaster, including requirements for oversight by a licensed architect and civil engineer. Mm-hmm. I mean, low-hanging fruit. Labor Day. <laughs> there you go. Same. A book called I Survived the Great Molasses Flood 1919 was written by the author Lauren Tarshis as part of the I Survived Children's Historical Fiction book series. I did not read it. That sounds kind of cool. Yeah. Comedy Central's Drunk History did. Uh, it's in an episode. It's season four. I forget what number episode Man, is called Food. I somehow like stopped watching those <laughs> and I love those. They're so great. You know what it is? It's like you watch them and you're like, I could watch these all day. And so you watch them all day and then and you get burnt out. And then you're like, I'm tired of drunk people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need to go back though. Yeah. Because they were hilarious. Season four. You can, okay. I think right now you can only get it on Amazon Prime season four, but okay. Paramount lied to me and I signed up for a subscription just to watch this <gasps> freaking episode. And then it wasn't there. They only have season one and three. Lies. And I was like, whatever. So I canceled immediately. Yeah. So Paramount Plus, screw you. Yeah. Anyway, so that is the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Insane. I can't even. Thank you for sharing. I I've never heard of that. Yeah. Everybody in Massachusetts or from there, they're like, yeah, yeah, Boston. They have a lot of history. Boston yeah. Tea Party. Come on, you got like <laughs> d- things. Plymouth Rock tea, molasses. Yeah. Sounds like a breakfast. Throw some apples in there. Right? <laughs> you like them apples. <laughs> Go talk your cow down there. <laughs> yeah, I, it's that's in, that. It makes me. It's a very uncomfortable story. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's hilarious, but and also tragic. people died. A thousand yeah. percent tragic. It would just imagine unavoidable. That it was unavoidable happening to you. Yes. The worst. The like the fear. Yeah. And and I mean, obviously, you know, John Barry, I can't even believe he made it out of that. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. Barely. Barely. I don't think the rest of his life was all that great. No. Because of all his injuries and it's 1919, nobody's life was that great. No. no to one. begin with. <laughs> it's just bad. <laughs> like, just on top of it. Yeah. Like, yeah. They were, just, they were just getting it through every day. I mean, I just, I can't imagine owning that company, seeing that tank and being like, is this a good idea? Seeing the tank and being like, it's probably okay. Okay, put a little more in. Right, it's fine. It's fine. It always groans. It always leaks. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't they just build a bunch of smaller containers, right? Like, okay, here's four storage things, right? We use the same yeah. amount of metal, right? And we're these two are operational right now. These two have to be... It, like, come on. Just it, honestly. Not that big vat. It's so much more impressive. Yeah. 23 million gallons. That's just insane. Of molasses. I it, mean... It does kind of make me think, too, that, like, you know, when you're, like, young and, and like, okay, if you, have you ever asked yourself, like, what would you swim in a swimming pool full of? You ever, you ever thought about that? Oh. 
I sometimes think about that. Like I've, I remember thinking like, oh, Jello. I think people Jell-O have asked me that, and I've, but I've never like contemplated it. Yeah. on my own. Yeah. So there's actually like a bunch of YouTubers who will actually fill up because you know the world today, Jen. Uh, will actually fill up swimming pools made of uh, with like whatever, and then jump into it. That's a that costs a lot of money though. Yeah, well, of course, but they have you know millions of like pudding whatever followers. Yeah, Jello. I think one of them was like water balloons one time. I feel like that's dangerous. How deep is this pool? That's like what a I regular wanted. pool, regular pool gin. No, I'm like yeah, kiddie pool maybe. Like yeah. that would be interesting. Even the even the you know the ball pits. Yeah. Oh, the right? worst. Okay, wait. The what worst. Was the, what was the show that they always talk about? What people have found in inside ball pits. What sh- what podcast is that? Oh, is that is that a podcast? Is it my favorite murder? Do they always talk? Oh, about it? Oh, they might have talked about yes, it. Yes, they oh no, they always talk about it because people write into them. <laughs> oh, what they find in the bottom of the yes, ball pits? Yes, like needles, like hypodermic. Oh, needles. God. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not into it. You know what frightened me was okay. So there was a period of time where I took gymnastics. Let's all laugh about it. I think I've mentioned it before <laughs> on the podcast. I think I've shown you a picture of my like gymnastics button of me and my it's leotard. Not funny, it's, it's ridiculous. Adorable. And I remember that. They built a foam pit, you know, where you take big cubes oh, of yeah. foam. Yeah, they all right? have those. You, everybody, yeah, yeah. So you back, land in them. Back when I started gymnastics, they didn't have it, mm-hmm. and then it was like a thing. Someone had. Oh, we should. You're do making this. me think of the video of the lady that's like <laughs> stuck in the foam pit. Okay, I saw that, and I was like, that would be me. <laughs> no, it <laughs> that would not. is me. Like they're pulling her out. Her shirt's coming up. I was like, that is my. Gr- <laughs> that is my greatest fear. I want it like if you know if that lady is listening. What are I just the chances? love how but, she like, was a virtual so hug. like. I'm, I'm going so to do it, kids. <laughs> yeah, she, <laughs> it was just the worst. She's decision. just like gonna, yeah, immediate all, regret. <laughs> just stuck. Immediate regret. <laughs> and and I met a lot of fear. Yes, because I think she was like head first. <laughs> yeah, she went. <laughs> well, and she got like stuck, stuck. Well, the thing is. That's like a full-grown woman, right? But like when I was in gymnastics, I was little. I was uh-huh. young and I was little and like athletic. Uh-huh. It took everything in me to get out of that foam pit. They are dangerous. Yeah. You have to be like in peak, peak physical shape. <laughs> and and not like heavy muscle. You gotta uh-huh. be like you have to be like a like a ballerina or something. You know what I mean? Just like peak physical slim shape. To get out of to that? get out of the foam. Because you cannot. You cannot. It's so hard. It's so difficult. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know what I'd fill a pool with, but definitely not molasses. No. And I feel like water balloons, is, that's also dangerous. Yeah. Well, and it's just not environmentally friendly. At all. Honestly. Yeah. But Jello, I could see Jello. I like pudding. Chocolate pudding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because then you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't see anything gross. Floating. If you had a vanilla, you could see like. But you couldn't eat it. You know what I mean? Why not? You'd be in it. <laughs> well, you could eat from over there. <laughs> just, just doggy paddle, <laughs> doggy paddle to a second breaststroke. Just, just eat a little. Yeah. What if it gets up your nose though? You're just like. <laughs> about like a pool full of donuts. Okay. Yeah, I'd be into that because be I feel like you wouldn't. They're small enough. Yeah. That yeah yeah. You kind of climb. You'd just be covered in like chocolate <laughs> and glaze. You have, to have to choose the kind of donut. Right. Like, I would just go glaze straight. Bo- boss, maybe a Boston filled. Oh. Cream. <laughs> well, then you're kind of doubling up with the pudding. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. I don't know. Hmm. Give us your thoughts. <laughs> Never thought about it. I know. All these options for pools filled with random stuff. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that story very much, Jen. I really enjoyed it. I know everybody else did. Of course. Everybody else is Googling it. They're like, what the hell? What is going on? Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. That was awesome. 
And until next time. Don't die out there. Bye. Bye. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jen and Megan, and edited by the talented and super nice guy, Jonathan Pillsbury. Thank you, Jonathan. Yay. Yay. Uh, All of this is possible because of an amazing group of Nature Nerd patrons. If you would like to be part of our super cool nerd community on Patreon, just go to our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com, or you can check our link tree on our Instagram page, which is kind of amazing. It is. I'm sorry. But it is. Uh, another way you can support is by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Uh, if you do, Jen will send you a really kick-ass sticker. You just have to send us your mailing address. I will do it if I forget. Hey, if you left us a review and I didn't send you a sticker, send us an email. Let me know. Just let me know. Uh, also, we would love to hear from you. We get a lot of our stories from listener suggestions. A lot. We kind of steal them. All the time. Yeah. Because um, they're so good. So if you would like to do that, go to our website. We have a contact page at you're going to die out there dot com or an email. You're going to die out there at gmail.com. And at the beginning of the episode, we give you a shout out. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And until next time. Don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.